On today's program, we take a look at an important historical discovery from the Arava Valley at Timna. We will take a glimpse into the wardrobe of Kings David and Solomon. Crossroads of Empires, Battleground of the Ages, City of Peace and of War. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello, welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Naktagal, coming to you today from Jerusalem, Israel, this February 21st. Thank you very much for joining us. This is a podcast where we talk about the latest in biblical archaeology, uh, about discoveries related to the time of the Bible, in the place of the Bible, and also prophetically significant news events uh, that are also happening at a lightning pace uh, here in the Middle East. And uh, we've seen more of that in this, this past week of the Biden administration's overtures towards Iran looking to complete or, or uh, let's say, continue the Obama administration's outreach to Iran, whereby it empowered Iran at the expense of its allies, most notably Israel. And that is happening at lightning pace once again. Uh, but this time it doesn't seem like the administration, the U.S., is shy about it at all. They don't mind everybody knowing. They feel like they are... Um, they are protected from the ballot box from voters in the United States, most of whom would disagree with their pro-Iran policy, although the, the major media over there does trumpet and continue to be the echo chamber of the Obama administration's third term, as it's being called, and, um, and yet it's unpopular, and yet that is what they are producing uh, going forward. Uh, detente with Iran, empowering Iran, whether it be Iranian proxies or through the horrendous uh, nuclear deal that that uh, the Biden administration is just lining up to to go uh, right back into. Let's put all that aside, though. Today we're going to be talking about biblical archaeology. We are going to have some articles on the website, I should say, watchjerusalem.co.il this coming week about what Iran is up to and what the Biden administration is doing at uh, supporting the Iranian regime and turning the Middle East on its head in the process. Um, So you can look forward to that. But today we're going to talk about a discovery that was a long time coming in many ways because this excavation has taken place for for decades. And and as time goes on, as technology increases and becomes more sophisticated, we learn a lot more about what happened anciently. And we are, in this case, referring to the excavations at Timna. There's been a lot said over the past two weeks about this story. Uh, well, I guess it's three weeks now. Back on Thursday, uh, January 28th, this was when the story was released, 9 p.m. Israel time. Um, this was the press release that was released by Tel Aviv University and the Israeli Antiquities Authority and sent out by the government press office here in Jerusalem. It says this historic discovery at Timna, a glimpse into the wardrobe of King David and King Solomon 3,000 years ago. So this is an excavation, as I said, that has been ongoing for decades. 
uh, Ben Yosef, uh, the archaeologist, uh, I think one of the leading excavators there, or the director of this excavation. I think he works uh, in, in parallel with somebody else, actually, but it's, the name's escaping me. <clears throat> but he has... Um, He's come. He's been excavating there since 2013 and discovering a vast amount of information, not necessarily startling discoveries in their own right, but information about the people who excavate, who who were living there, uh, working there at Timna, and this is a location that's just above uh, the the de- the uh, Red Sea, so northwards a lot from a lot uh, in the Timna Valley. And um, he's been excavating there for some time and, and is discovering some amazing things from the refuse pits, really, of the of the copper production that was done there and finding what people ate, finding what people wore uh, from 3,000 years ago, again, this time period of King David and Solomon, and bringing to life or putting color to the Bible and this history. And in this case specifically, I'll just uh, read a uh, couple of sentences from this, and then we'll go to Ben Joseph himself um, to, talking to the Jerusalem Post. It says this in the, in, the, in the press release, For the first time, rare evidence has been found of fabric dyed with royal purple dating from the time of King Solomon, King David and King Solomon. While examining the colored textiles from the Timnah Valley, an ancient copper production district in, the su- in southern Israel, in a study that has lasted for several years, the researchers were surprised to find remnants of woven fabric, a tassel and fibers of wool dyed with royal purple. Direct radiocarbon dating confirms that the finds date from approximately 1000 BCE, corresponding to the biblical monarchies of David and Solomon in Jerusalem. The dye, which is produced from a species of mollusk found in the Mediterranean over 300 kilometers from Timna, is often mentioned in the Bible and appears in various Jewish and Christian contexts. And so this is the first time that the dye itself, this purple dye, uh, has been found um, uh, in terms of the earliest time in history it's been found. It's been mentioned in in documents. It's mentioned in the Bible, as we'll get to, uh, mentioned outside the Bible, going back maybe 4,000 years, almost 4,000 years. Uh, And yet, as far as finding it, this royal purple, purple from these mollusks uh, that uh, on a fabric, and uh, this was from uh, 3,000 years ago now, and the the latest one was from 1,000 years after that. And so this is is radical, a radical discovery that's showing that, as the Bible describes the people uh, that were working around King Solomon and King David, that purple dye, uh, well, the true purple, was a feature of that material culture, and they have found that. And I'm going to show you some pictures based from the study uh, a little bit later, of some of these fabrics with this purple dye from 3,000 years ago that can still be easily made out today. So what I'm going to do right now is just go directly to an interview that was published a couple of days ago um, by Rosella Terracatan, and she is one of the archaeology writers, or maybe the archaeology writer for the Jerusalem Post. She interviewed Tel Aviv professor, associate professor professor of archaeology, Professor Eris Ben-Yosef, Talking about this um, recent discovery, and uh, just I'll let him introduce how this discovery was made. 
Uh, so we knew that we have this unique collection of textiles and fabrics. Uh, some of them were with a little bit of color, uh, but the big surprise came from the lab. We are working with Dr. Naama Sukenik from the Israel Antiquities Authority. And we, uh, you know, we take the materials from the excavations and we try to understand what was the color made from, what was the dyeing stuff that they were using to color the fabrics. And one day, like about uh, a year ago, less than a year ago, she called me to the office saying, you know, we found the royal purple here in Timna uh, from a fabric that is dated uh, 3000 years old fabric. And I said, it's impossible. It's too early for that. It's uh, deep in the desert. And it's a very, you need to understand that this, this color is the most expensive, expensive color at the time. It was made out of cisnes in a very sophisticated process of uh, manufacturing. So it was not, it didn't make sense that it was the real purple, but we've checked it again and again uh, in the lab. And it is uh, indeed the true purple, which is uh, mentioned in the Bible many times. In Hebrew, it's called the Argaman. Uh, so it is a very interesting evidence in, in, a, in a copper production site, which is dated to the period of the Kings David and Solomon. Uh, so it's all quite very interesting uh, about who were the people in Timna at that time, who uh, was wearing this, garments made out of true purple, can we connect it to the stories in the Hebrew Bible? And all of that uh, was, it, it became extremely interesting. And indeed a few weeks ago, it was the, finally the academic publication uh, was uh, in print, was published after a lot of work. And uh, uh, this discovery, uh, we shared this discovery with the scholarly community and everybody else because it's really, uh, interesting to, to, to have a real textile, a real piece of garment from uh, the biblical time, colored with the true purple that is still very clear today. And so that was Ben Yosef talking to the Jerusalem Post, the excavator here it, at Timna, where this, this fabric was, was uh, uncovered. And of course, uh, there were far more involved, far more people involved in the discovery of the purple dye. Um, I think the Nama, uh, Nama Sukunik, uh, she was the one that was uh, mainly involved with the, analyze, uh, the analysis of this of this fabric to discover that it was this purple dye that was used on them. Now, this this study in the Plus One Journal, it's entitled Early Evidence of Royal Purple Dyed Textile from Timnah Valley, Israel. And I think it's really important with things like this to go to the actual study themselves, uh, even though the, the verbiage might be a little bit more difficult to understand. You can understand it. Um, these are people too that wrote this, and you're a person, so you can understand this. Uh, and we're just going to go direct from there um, because it 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 allows all the the coloring of media reports to be taken away, and we hear direct uh, from the excavators or the archaeologists or the prof uh, professionals themselves. And then, of course, we will add our color to the uh, discussion here in this academic journal. So this was published uh, January 28th, the same day that the uh, press release came out. So these were carbon samples, take or not, these were samples of fabric that were taken from the excavation uh, at, at Slaves Hill, 
that's uh, what it's called in quotes, um, which is this location of heavy copper production through through history, um, but specifically intensifying during the time period of King David's and Solomon, and they've found the intensification of that process and the the dramatic increase in in sophistication of the copper smelting process around this time. And they've shown, actually, um, that what was taking place here in the copper smelting, there was a, a similar change in the in the technology and the sophistication of it that took place further to the north, just to the, just to the southern part of the Dead Sea or inside modern-day Jordan. And so you've got a, a really big span of space between these two areas of the Fayan, Fainan and, 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 and Timna, these two excavation sites with these two copper smelting facilities. And through different periods of history, you have copper smelting taking place at these places. Yet, when you get into this time period directly preceding, uh, let's say, King David and into King Solomon's time, the technological advances of both sites match, meaning there is uniform change technologically uh, over a vast space of a vast space, a vast territory, indicating they would say a central polity, somebody that's organizing and is directing both activities, both smelting processes at the same time. They're sharing intelligence because it's the same people, and that speaks really to an, to the Edomite state, as we'll get to uh, eventually. But let's stick to this study for one. So we're we're talking about this place, Timna. Uh, where there have been uh, copper mines uh, discovered. This is all the, the material remains that comes from copper production and the people that were working within the pop copper production facility. Quoting now in their introduction, Textile dyeing has been practiced since prehistoric times using dye that, is, that are extracted from both plants and animal resource or sources. The color of textiles provides a window into various aspects of ancient societies, including the role of textile dyeing and technological advancements, fashion, social stratification, agriculture, and trade connections. However, textiles are rare in the archaeological record, like any per- perishable organic material, they are usually subject to rapid decomposition and their preservation requires special conditions to prevent destruction by microorganisms. And such conditions exist in the ancient copper ore district in the Timnah Valley, southern Israel. And starting in 2013, excavations in the several copper production, several copper production sites in the region by, this, uh, by the central Timnah Valley project uncovered dozens of fragments of dyed textiles, which currently constitute the largest Iron Age assemblage in the southern Levant. And so you might have, and we've reported on this in, in, in on Watch Jerusalem, different textiles coming out of the ground here for the past decade and their colors and how that matches with the Bible. But up to this point, they weren't able to determine whether it was well, one of the colors being was true purple. But what's also interesting is here we are in an incredibly dry place, and that's the reason why these textiles were able to be preserved so long. Did they wear clothes in Jerusalem in 3000 BCE? Of course they did. Uh, uh, 1000 BCE, sorry, 3000 years ago. Of course they did. However, that organic material, it's it's unlikely that it's going to remain, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls were found at the Dead Sea. That's where they were, but they they survived there because the dry temperatures... Uh, or the dry climate, I should say, that allowed the, the papyrus or whatever they were written on those scrolls to be preserved for such a long time. The same kind of climate exists 
down in the Timnar Valley. And so um, that's why they've been able to find uh, these, these fragments of organic material. Um, based on this, uh, this assemblage of, of uh, textiles, it continues, we found three items that were dyed with true purple which is based on extracts from the Murex sea snail. True purple, also known as royal purple, was considered the most prestigious dye for textiles in many ancient societies. And what it's going to go through here is look at, in this paper, uh, the, the purple Murex snail and how, well, the Murex snail and how he, they actually extracted this uh, purple dye from it. Uh, I'll just read that here in the next in the next uh, uh, subhead. Dyeing is based on material extraction from the snail's hypobranchial ground uh, gland, sorry, located under the mollusk's, mollusk's mantle, and the exact shade depends on different parameters such as the chemical precursors compounds uh, of each snail species, the dyeing process, the level of oxygen and light that the dye was exposed to. Uh, and what was interesting is that in a corresponding study, or I think it might be in this or uh, related to this, it came out at the same time as somebody that went went over to uh, Sicily, to Palermo, Palermo uh, on the northern coast of Sicily, where they do eat this murex snail. And uh, the, the I forget what the professor's name was, or the doctor's name was, but they um, actually recreated this process to create the pur- true purple uh, through the different different uh, the extraction and then how long it was exposed to light and sun determines uh whether the purple was come or a different shade of, of the blue uh it's a really interesting process that they have recreated from from obviously what took place three thousand years ago uh just moving on a little bit further let's go to the bible and we'll see the places in the bible where this is discussed um uh, the, I'll just quote it, quote it further on now. This is page four. The first use of the term royal purple is found in a clay tablet from Gnosis in Crete dating from the 13th century BCE. In the Hebrew words, the words Agaman and Tehelet appear side by side and most probably represent a purple hue and violet blue hue respectively similar to the Akkadian words, Argamanu and Takiltu. So that's how it is referred to in Hebrew. This true purple is the Argaman color, and the Tehelet is more of the the blue uh, hue. And it says here, both hues are mentioned in the Hebrew Bible in relation to clothing of the highest social rank. So let's just go to a couple of verses. What is interesting is they say here that the earliest use of the term is uh, found on a clay tablet from the 13th century. And yet we do see in Judges chapter 8, as they bring out, that the Midianite kings Midianite kings were using purple, this true purple. And so were, was it being used in the, the tabernacle or mentioned in the, in the way that the tabernacle was constructed. Of course, the tabernacle was constructed in the 15th century. So that would actually predate it. And if you would say that the Bible, the first five books were written by Moses, edited obviously later around Samuel's time or David's time, then you would say that that would be the earliest mention of the purple, the royal purple uh, being used, uh, not some fragment from Crete. 
but let's there's a couple of verses that I'd like to go to. One is just referring to how that there was an expert that came from Phoenicia, this area on the coast north of Israel during the time of King David and Solomon, that talks about him being uh, useful in purple and being able to use this color. This is Second Chronicles chapter two and verse three and seven. This is from the Berean Study Bible version in English. It says this, this, Then Solomon sent word to King Haram of Tyre, Do for me, or Tyre, or one of these uh, locations in ancient Phoenicia, do for me as you did for my father David when you sent him cedars to build himself a house to live in, talking about the palace. Send me, therefore, a craftsman who is skilled in engraving to work with the gold and the silver, the bronze and the iron and purple, purple, crimson and blue yarn. He will work with my craftsmen in Judah and Jerusalem, whom my father David provided. And then a little bit further on, it says this. And King Hiram, and it's interesting, and of course, we talk about these people of Phoenicia. Um, this, they're labeled as such. Their name actually comes from a root meaning purple. And so they, they were known all through the Mediterranean, these people, as being the experts at working with purple these Phoenician people, and David requests help of the king for his palace, and Solomon is going to request the help from the king of somebody that can work in purple as well to adorn the temple. And what I'm, why I'm connecting these biblical scriptures is because we have royal purple been found 300 kilometers away from the Mediterranean Sea down in Timna. Purple fabrics. Purple fabrics that uh, matches the same time period that the Bible says that we have Solomon reaching out to the Phoenicians. We have purple dye on clothes being 300 kilometers away down further in Timnah. And so this biblical description, although it's written uh, by Ezra, here we are in the uh, 5th century, 5th century BCE, 500 years after the time that it's describing, and yet we know that it's accurate. We know it's accurate. In its minutest detail, why mention purple? Why mention blue? Why mention the yarn? If it was just making it up, that's very specific. You're putting your historical, uh, your your historicity, whether you're accurate, on the line. If you're Ezra, if you're writing this uh, in the 5th century BCE, you're writing about a time 500 years earlier, and it turns out that he was good to write to be specific because these people were known for their ability to uh, get the get the snails, create the purple dye, and use it on clothing, and that's why he's reaching out. King Hiram added, "This is verse fourteen, uh, verse eleven to fourteen. King Haram added, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has made heavens and earth, and has given da- King David a wise son, talking about Solomon, with insight and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. So now I am sending sending you Haram Avi." A skillful man, endowed with creativity. He is the son of a woman from the daughters of Dan. I think we covered this some time ago, of Dan's relationship with the Phoenicians. So this man was a son of the daughters of Dan, who's a tribe of Israel, who lived for a time, for a long time, actually, up in the north of Israel, right next to Phoenician territory. And his father is a man of Tyre. He's, a, he's skilled in the work with gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and blue, and crimson, yarn, and fine linen. He knows how to do it. He knows how to work with this. And so that's 
you know, biblical verse that is describing the very time period that they have discovered from Timna, um, this purple dye, and they find you find in the Bible an exact parallel or exact uh, link to this same time period when purple was being used and requested uh, to be used on the construction of the temple. Just a couple more quotes uh, about this uh, from the um, from the study. And this is a good question. Where did they get the purple dye from? We've, we've mentioned the fact that it came from 300 kilometers away. And what's interesting is this study brings out, well, I'll just quote it now. This is page 15. It's reasonable to suggest that the Timnar samples are a product of the dyeing industry in the Phoenician coastal plain. So the same place that the Bible says that Solomon is reaching out to, and David did before him, for help. Um, for a man that knew how to work in purple to come down and help him build the temple, he's saying it's reasonable to assume, uh, it was reasonable to suggest that the samples that we find in Timnah are from exactly the same location as well. The, few mure- the f- three murex or snail species discussed above are present in the Mediterranean Sea and are not found in the Red Sea. That's amazing. Red Sea's right there. These type of snails... Uh, not found in the Red Sea, so it has to come from the Mediterranean. In the Eastern Mediterranean, the largest concentration of Iron Age sites with evidence of purple industry is located among the northern coast of the southern Levant. They include Tyre, Shikmona, Tel Cabri, Tel Kaysen. I might be uh, butchering some of those pronunciations. And so they kind of locate it here to this uh, potential location, one of them being Tel Shikmona and um, one other little section. Uh, which talks about that they could come from Shikmona or, or at least suggest they suggest that from Shikmona. Maybe I don't have that direct quote. But basically they say that it provides, there is evidence that Tel Shikmona is probably the most likely location of where these came. And this is just outside of Haifa today, not far. This is within the state of Israel. And we covered this just uh, last two years ago. We talked about how that researchers had discovered this facility this facility that was a, a large manufacturing facility for purple dye. And what they'd found there is no, no evidence of the actual, um, let's say, fabric that the purple dye dyed. But they found the vessels in which that purple dye was located. This is uh, what some of the archaeologists that were excavating there and that, that went, sorry, that went back to study the material that was originally excavated in the 60s and 70s from the time period of the Bible. Professor Ayelet Gilboa and Golan uh, Shelvi, they wrote this for the Jerusalem, uh, for the Jewish Post a couple of years ago. It says this, thanks to these largest insights, The researchers can now cast new light on the importance of Shikamona. This small, isolated site was not a village or a settlement at all, but rather a fortified factory for the production of purple dye and the dyeing of textiles and wool. Its location on the rocky coast with no convenient anchorage now becomes logical. Such an environment would provide the ideal habitat for the murex snails, which could be harvested in the tens of thousands. So they found all these vessels and the purple dye is still on them. 
And they're like, well, what is this settlement? I mean, no one can really anchor there. This, what's, what's the purpose of this? And it turns out that this little cove or this area is perfect for where murex snails could be harvested. This is where they were. This is where they grew. And so right there, you have a dye facility where it's produced uh, in the northern parts of Israel, right bordering Phoenician territory. And it dates from around 3,000 years ago, 1,000 BCE. And at the same time, a year and a half later, what do they find Or down in, down in uh, Timna? They find purple dyed fabric that most likely came from this location. So here we are in 2019, 2020. How much more information is available to us? Well, 2021 now, sorry. How much more available information is available to us to shed light on the Bible, to provide a, a, uh, a beautiful setting for the biblical narrative, to reaffirm the biblical narrative's truth, truth that comes from the Bible to the point and down to the very minutiae of details, the, the colors of the garments of Solomon's servants, or David's servants. That's what they've found in Timna, and we found the location at which those murex snails were harvested, the dye was produced, and we found, most likely, evidence of the people that wore it and what they were doing down in Timna. Now, let's get the dating of this, because that's most important, right? We can say that we found dye on fragments, but what's important to connect it to the Bible or a historical resource, historical source, is the dating of that. And so I want to go back now to this study, and this is back to page number five. It says this, Three of the many fragments of dyed textiles and fibers from Timna were, that were analyzed yielded results compatible with the true purple dye stuffs. And it talks about where they were found. The site was tightly dated to the 11th uh, first half late 11th, sorry, first half of the 10th century, early Iron Age, based on the results of the excavation in several areas. These include a dozen of radiocarbon dates from short-lived materials, mostly date seeds, the study of pottery typology, and other considerations. In addition, as part of the current study, we sent a fragment from one of the dyed items, number 17, to be directly dated by radiocarbon, which you can do because it's an organic material. The result, table found in Table 1, is in perfect agreement with the previous, previously published chronology of the site. So what it's talking about there is the dating. The dating of this location, which the dye was found, fits to 3,000 years ago. And in fact, they carbon dated the very sample itself with the purple dye on it, and it fits perfectly to 3,000 years ago before the present, give or take, as there always is uh, a little bit. Uh, and so this is an incredible, um, and you could, incredible kind of uh, comparison with the biblical text and, and to find um, the time period that the Bible says purple is going to be used and here you have remains from clothing, and this specific specific one came from sheep's wool. There was some goat's wool, I guess, that was used there as well. Goat's hair, I guess it should be said. Um, but sheep's wool as well uh, is, uh, was the material on which this purple dye was located. And it's from the time period or a context of 3,000 years ago. Now, what does the Bible say, the historical document we have to describe this area 
What does it say about the people that live there down in Timnah? You could say, since we're talking about David and Solomon, and there has been much debate about David and Solomon, about whether the, 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 biblical, the Bible's description of those men is accurate, you could say that this place has nothing to do with David and Solomon. Um, however, what you do find um, here on the site is really tantalizing evidence of a very similar situation to what the Bible describes, a political context to what the Bible describes. Now, the people that were living down here were Edomites. These are sons of Esau, Jacob, Israelites. His name was changed to Israel. The Israelites came from him, and he had a brother. His brother was called Esau, and Esau can also be translated, or at least in the Bible it says that Esau is also Edom. And so we know that this territory down here where Timnah was belonged to the Edomites or to the sons of Esau. Now, these people are going to work with the Israelites on occasion, but most of the time, not at all. Most of the time, they're going to be adversaries of the Israelites. There is a really interesting passage of Scripture that details when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. and Maybe we can go there first. This is Deuteronomy chapter 2. And it talks about how they wanted to get to the promised land. The quickest way to get to the promised land was obviously to go from Egypt straight up the way of the sea along the, the, the uh, Mediterranean coast and get there. But the Bible says in, in Exodus chapter 13, I believe it is, that I don't want them to go that way because they're going to see war really fast because you've got a lot of uh, fortresses right on, the, right, right on the, the exit of Egypt as you're going up towards where the Philistines would be. Um, and I don't want the Israelites, the slave people, the refugees that are coming out of Egypt to find war straight away. So he's going to lead them by the wilderness of the Red Sea, and they're going to go further south, and they're going to uh, cross the Red Sea, and they're going to go into the wilderness, they're going to go to Mount Sinai, and then they're going to eventually, at the end of the 40 years of wandering, try and get to the Promised Land a different way. This way they're going to actually travel and approach the promised land from the east across the Jordan River is going to be the way that they'll get there. But they're in the Sinai right now. Let's put aside all these theories that the wilderness wandering was in Saudi Arabia somewhere. Uh, we're not going to get into that right now. We'll have some programs on, on really disputing that uh, current notion uh, in archaeological circles. Um, so if they're going to get from the Sinai to the, to the other side of the Jordan River, just above the Dead Sea, in which to make uh, the crossing of the Jordan River, they've got Edomite territory right there, smack dab in the middle, that's occupying this area all the way from the southern Dead Sea Valley all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, all the way down to the modern Israeli city of Eilat. And part of the way down, most of the way down, is Timnah, the Timnah Valley, where these mines were. And what does it say here in Deuteronomy chapter 2? And I'll read all the way through till, let's go to verse 8. It says, Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Eternal had spoke unto me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. Mount Seir is just another name, of, of part of Edomite territory. And the Eternal spoke unto me, saying, You have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward. And command you the people, saying, You are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, your brothers, right? The children of Esau, Edom, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take you good heed unto the yourselves, therefore, 
Meddle not with them. Notice God's command here. We we kind of look at the Israelites as being God's special chosen people, and indeed they were. But there were other sons of Abraham that God cared a lot about that also got territory that the Israelites were not allowed to inhabit. And this is Edomite territory. So we are not expecting, as we read through this passage, this, this place in biblical Edom, Timnah, we are not expecting massive Israelite settlement down there, ever. Why not? The Bible says this is not your territory. That doesn't belong to you. That belongs to the Edomites. Notice this, verse 4. Uh, verse 5, metal not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a foot's breadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. So this is going to be their land. And you could say, I suppose, that Timnah's kind of right on the border of what would be Israelites. So maybe I'll take that, <laughs> take it kind of back that Israelites might have been able to be a little bit around there. But at this time, definitely the e- the Esau Uh, Well, the Edomites were there in this location. Uh, You shall buy meat of them for money uh, that you may eat, and you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink, for the Eternal your God has blessed you in all the works of your hand. He knows you're wandering through this great wilderness in these 40 years. The Eternal your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. And when we passed by from our children the bread. Uh, our brethren, sorry, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, through the way of the plain from Elot and from I- Izzy and Geber, and we turned, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. So you can look to the other account in the book of Numbers. I forget exactly. Uh, in the book of Numbers, you can, it goes into greater detail about this. And it talks about how they approached the king of Edom and said unto him at this time, said, We are brothers. Uh, let us, let us, if we can, pass by right through this way. We're going to go on the king's highway. Don't worry. We're not going to uh, meddle with you at all. And let us pass through the territory. And the king said, no, you don't. You're not coming through here. And the people, the Israelites, were very grieved. Why? Because they had to go all the way down to the to the mouth or to the, the northern tip of the Red Sea at the Gulf of Aqaba to uh, navigate circumnavigate, or at least navigate, the, the, the boundary of Edomite territory. So that does show you that the Edomites were in control at this time, 15th century. The Bible also talks about, in this really interesting chapter, um, in, in Genesis chapter 38, I believe it is, it, it refers to, uh, for 36, sorry, Genesis chapter 36, it refers to all the different kings of Edom, the kings that would have occupied this, this location. It says this in verse 31, And these are the kings that reigned in the land of Edom before there reigned any king over the children of Israel. And it goes through all the different kings and the leaders. There was a kingdom of Edom before there was a kingdom of Israel, before King Saul. And they they were located in this area. So this was a territory that was very close to the border of the Israelite promised land. Let's put it that way but not necessarily the land that they should live in. Remember, this they were going to live from Dan to Beersheba in the south. That was their area of tribal allotment. Um, though they would have influence, David would, 
uh, and other kings over a greater territory. And the Edomites kind of came under uh, the Div- Davidic territory a little bit later. Going forward in the Bible, we can get to the time period of King David. And you can read in 2 Samuel chapter 8, I'll just read this quickly. This kind of summarizes all the territorial expansion that King David made, 2 Samuel chapter 8. And towards the end of this, it talks about how that David, reading verse 14, and he put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom, put he garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants, and the Eternal preserved David whithersoever he went. So it's saying there that David conquered these people and he put garrisons there, meaning there's some outposts to take to look after them to make sure that they didn't get out of control. And this is the area that the mines are located in. And so while Ben Yosef, when he's talking about this, he talks mainly about Edomite, an Edomite kingdom, an Edomite polity, and as he should. That's right. That's right in line with the Bible. So who then were in charge of the mines? Who then were in charge of, the, of this territory during the time of David and Solomon? Well, the Bible would say that it was David and Solomon. And Joab, or Joab, was specifically the one that would do the, the conquering of this territory. Um, but we'll just go to 1 Kings chapter 11. And this is the chapter, so they're jumping forward now to the time of Solomon's time. Uh, this is towards the end of his reign, Solomon's reign. David ruled 40 years and then Solomon would rule 40 years uh, over in, in Jerusalem. But it says here, uh, verse 14, it says, And the Eternal stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, and he was of the king's seed in Edom. So this is towards the end of Solomon's reign, and he's not being right with God, and God's starting to raise up enemies that are going to start to take away territory from Solomon, territory that David had conquered. And it's going to give a flashback to introduce who this Hadad the Edomite is. Now, in verse 15, For it came to pass, or it had came to pass, when David was in Edom, and Joab the captain of the host was gone up to bury the slain after he had smitten every male in Edom. That's what he did to take over this territory. For in six months did Joab remain there with all Israel until he had cut off every male in Edom. That Hadad, so this was somebody that was part of the royal line of the kings of, of Edom, uh, he fled, he and certain Edomites of his father, with him to go to Egypt, Hadad being a little child. And so right at the time that David conquers this area and subjugates it and, and puts over um, his rulership over the territory of Edom, including the mines, including where these people were clothed, uh, wearing this royal purple, um, you had one of the ruling class, one of the kingly, kingly line, probably the crown prince, make his way over to Egypt and stay there for a while. And he would actually be there with Jeroboam uh, eventually, who would uh, wrestle the kingdom away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But you can see here that we have, in this intervening period of David, through till sometime during Solomon's reign, perhaps the very end of it, or close to it, about a, I would say, half deck, a half century, 50 years or so, where Israel is in control of the territory of Edom, And at this time, we see a massive ramp up in production at the coal mines. A lot more slag is being produced, being produced in a very high, uh, sophisticated manner. And it's in those slag heaps, which is the refuse, the waste of this process of taking copper ore and producing uh, copper that can be used in the temple and elsewhere to make stuff. Uh, You find all these 
beautiful textiles or remnants of these beautiful textiles, including this true purple. And so um, what's interesting about this is, is this is a very beautiful colliery with the Bible to show that you have a period of history in which the Bible says these things were being used, these colors were being used on clothing, and you have Israelite garrisons. Probably the highest officials watching over the mines were Israelites. And there's indication that the actual mine workers that were involved in the smelting process were not <clears throat> the, the lower rungs of society by what they ate. Fish from the Mediterranean Sea. Why not fish from the Red Sea? Well, they probably had some of that too, but they had fish from the, from the Mediterranean Sea as well. Clothed with garments of beautiful wool and colored in royal purple that takes a lot of time to produce. These were high officials that were overseeing this work. Perhaps at this time I could just play a little documentary or a little short segment of a documentary that was on the Discovery. Oh, the History Channel, the Smithsonian. So I think it might have been the Discovery Channel. This was a couple of years ago about just these, uh, the copper mines themselves. And it, it does quote uh, Professor uh, Ben-Yosef as well, so you can get a more of an idea of the place that, that we're talking about. So who were these people running this industrial empire? For decades, experts have believed this international metal trade must have been built on the back of slave labor. They dug the mines with chisels. And we have thousands of these galleries and shafts. We are talking about something that was uh, very hard physically. It was very intense labor. In order to discover who was actually living on Slaves Hill, Ben Yosef and his team turned to the waste they left behind. In between the layers of slag, what we have found is amazing materials that are related to the people working at the furnaces. We found uh, what they wear. We found clothes. We have found textiles. We found ropes. We found remains of bones of what they ate that reveal the story of the people working at the furnaces. The team found wheat and barley, as well as countless seeds from olives, grapes, and dates. It's a menu of much higher quality than archaeologists would expect to find in a slave's quarters. Somebody really took care that these people would eat very well. And finding evidence of lush foods in such an arid environment meant they had to have been transported in from far and wide. They were taking care of the very difficult logistics to bring all of this fancy food all the way to the desert. The main encampment at Slaves Hill was producing evidence that didn't fit with the profile of an enslaved workforce surviving on meager rations. At the University of Tel Aviv, Dr. Leider Saperhen has uncovered further evidence of different living conditions at the Timna mining complex. These are the kind of animal bones that we find in Timna. The majority would be the sheep and goat. Expert butcher marks indicate how the meat was separated out. The remains of the best cuts of meat were found on Slaves Hill. 
people that were engaged in the smelting activities had mainly the ribs and the shoulder blades and the upper limb bone, the better parts of the meat. The poor meat parts would be, for example, the knuckle bone of the lower hind limb. And we found many of these in the area of the people which were engaged in the supporting activities. A striking social hierarchy had been discovered. One class of slaves or cheap labor engaged in excruciating work in the mines. The other, people who were so valued, they were awarded the finest food. The social status of this metal smelters was high. They were treated as somebody respected. Definitely not as slaves, as was previously thought. And so it makes sense then that these copper mines, that people have been searching a long time for Solomon's mines, that, they, that the copper mines there were used for the production of, of the copper in Solomon's, in Solomon's temple. That would be there. That would be used with, uh, to produce bronze. A um, lot of different vessels, a lot of the, the massive uh, bath or laver that stored the water right there in the temple court. That was made of this material as well. Where did it come from? There's actually other passage of the Bible that talks about this process of producing vessels and how it actually happened uh, in the around this area as well, inside the the Rift Valley, and how it'd be how they would be cast there also. And so, what I love about this discovery is it's not King David was here. It's not an inscription. It's not a seal impression. It's not a bulla. Um, but what it does is it puts flesh on the bones of the people in the Bible, or in this case, it puts clothing on the flesh of the people in the Bible. Maybe not King David himself, maybe not Solomon himself, but certainly the people that were working uh, in the industry of, of ancient Israel, were the Edomites, were the Israelites, the actual workers, it's hard to tell. But we do have a match with a lot of these details, and the dye, the purple dye, is just one beautiful part of it. Can you imagine 3,000 years ago, as the Bible describes, this person coming down from Tyre who knew exactly how to work with purple? Why? Because that's where the Murex snails were. And him being used to teach, perhaps, the Israelites how to use the purple dye and how to, how to create it, maybe. Um, and then the high officials in Solomon's and David's court starting to wear this extremely rare, uh, extremely expensive uh, purple dye on their clothing. And then those, those purple dyed garments finding their way all the way to the south of Israel today, to Timna, to the copper mines, where this important function of Israelite royal society was taking place. More and more evidence comes out in the very smallest of details that match with the biblical account, and particularly this time of David and Solomon, at a time when David and Solomon are most uh, rejected academically by many scholars, 
and yet there is evidence for their reign. Now, what's interesting even about uh, Ben Yosef, he talks about how that uh, towards the end, I think I might actually, well, I'll just talk about it. This is something that he says in the press release. He talks about how that sometimes people are looking for King David and King Solomon's palace, and yet they might be looking for the wrong thing, because what we find is uh, more often the case, we find evidence, as we found down in, in Timnah, as they found out in Timnah, you find evidence for a people, you find evidence for what they did, but maybe they were more of a nomadic people. Not a nomad in terms of Bedouin or in terms of people that were poor, but just because they live in tents doesn't mean they're poor. And while that might be true, and while that is likely true for the Edomite state, I would say that if you're looking for David and Solomon and evidence of David and Solomon, it seems to me that you can find buildings. I mean, he talks about the lack of evidence, and, and I, I, he, he mentions the fact that just because you haven't found evidence of David and Solomon doesn't mean that they didn't exist. If they were like the Edomites, in type of these rich wandering nomads, or rich nomads that, that lived in tents or didn't have magnificent structures. However, the Bible does talk about structures that King David and King Solomon uh, did build. It, they, the Bible talks about King David's palace, it does, beings constructed of stone, of a beautiful building of cedar. This is not, this is not a tent that David lived in. And that's, that comparison was the very reason of why David wanted to put the, the Ark of the Covenant inside a temple, because the Ark was still in a tent. The Ark was still in, a, let's say, a, a, uh, a, a dwelling of a nomad, but he wasn't. And so when you do get to David and Solomon's time in Jerusalem, we should fully expect to find uh, buildings. We should fully expect to find beautiful structures, magnificent structures related to Solomon's time. And this isn't something that we shy away of at all. This is something we fully believe has just been discovered already with King David's palace right there in the northern part of the city of David, that you can visit today and see the stones, or at least the foundation stones of that magnificent building, and jump over the road there and go to the Ophel, and you'll find massive walls from King Solomon's time. You will. They are found. They are there in Jerusalem. Ben Yosef says this in the press release, We know that the tribes of Israel were originally nomadic and that the process of settlement was gradual and prolonged. Archaeologists are looking for King David's palace. However, David may not have expressed his wealth in splendid buildings, but with objects more suited to a nomadic heritage, such as textiles and artifacts. And that's one thing where I would probably take exception to this, just because the biblical account is very clear. When it comes to Jerusalem, we should find buildings from King David's time. We should find buildings from King Solomon's time if they weren't destroyed from a later habitation, which in most cases they are. And yet the evidence is there. I mean, I don't know why we don't put more attention on that or others don't put more attention onto the King David's palace. Okay, it's not, you don't think it's King David's palace. What is it? Okay, it's a large building from David's time. Okay, fine. It's still monol- It's still huge. It's still massive. And it dates from the time period that Israel is said to have conquered Jerusalem. Okay, let's go to Solomon's period. Head further north into the Ophel. What do you find? Massive walls. 
massive structures, city wall, dated from what period? Solomon's time. Others might come along and say it was 20 years after Solomon. Well, big deal. <laughs> it's still within that window. And so you do have, okay, so it wasn't Solomon that built the massive structure uh, north on the Ophel or just south of the Temple Mount Wall. It was Rehoboam. Really? Really? Why not just say that the Bible describes Solomon constructing a massive place, massive thing right there, like his palace, and we find a massive thing right, right there. And so it's probably dated to Solomon's time. Why would we want to say it's, it's Rehoboam's time? Archaeology is always going to give a window. It's never precise. It's going to give a window of construction, a window, an age. And in this case, it's most likely King Solomon's. And so where he has done absolutely awesome work, gathering as much information as he can out of every shred of detail or every little discovery, I would say, at Timna, let's hold out for even more discoveries in Jerusalem that support the biblical notion that David and Solomon did build massive structures in Jerusalem. They weren't just nomads over a, a state. They were settled at this point. And that was David's point, establishing Jerusalem as the eternal capital of uh the house of David, uh, from here on. Thank you very much for listening today. Thank you very much for these archaeologists and tremendous studies that have been made that are bringing the Bible back to life for the rest of us. And I would say thank you very much for being accurate with how you're going to present your discoveries without bias that can, uh, without too much bias that can intrude into an academic study of such a, of such a, let's say, a contentious period in history. I think they've done a fantastic job. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to send some feedback to our program, the Watch Jerusalem podcast, you can do so by writing your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il, and I'll talk to you next week.